Good morning, Greenville Oaks, and happy Father's Day. It's that time of the year when we do celebrate our dads, no matter how tongue-tied we get, and we try to say it personally. But uh, we have been blessed by our fathers. And I know some of us have had struggles with our fathers. Some of us still have struggles with our fathers. But they have given us a great blessing, and God has given us a blessing in them. Uh, my dad <clears throat> was born in the 1920s uh, out in West Texas in the Lubbock area between Tahoka and Post, if you know where those little towns are, uh, on a farm. He was the oldest of five sons, and they lived in a two-room house. It was a little crowded in a two-room house with seven people. So at night, he and the next oldest son would, would walk down to the neighboring house at the next farm, which was his grandparents, and they would sleep there. He says he still remembers waking up during the night when one of those blue northers would come howling down off of the eastern slopes of the Rockies. And because these houses were up on kind of a pier and beam thing, maybe cinder blocks, I don't know, with with no siding around the foundation, that wind would blow up under the house and through the floorboards. And he said, you could look down and see that thin layer of linoleum just kind of rise when the gust would come up. So he was a survivor not only of of the Great Depression, but of the Dust Bowl. It just made life horrendous out there. By the time he was eight or nine, he was old enough that he had to help work to provide a living for the family. So he didn't get to go to school until the harvest was over, which would be almost Christmas time. It's hard to cram a year's worth of learning into half a year. So by the time he got to be in the eighth grade, he was... So frustrated and exasperated, he gave up and just went to working full-time. When he turned 17, he, uh, he decided to come to Fort Worth to see if he could get a job at the bomber plant. World War II had broken out. But instead of getting a job at Convair then, which is now Lockheed, uh, he got a job with Uncle Sam. He got drafted and got an all-expenses-paid trip to the South Pacific on a troop ship. And he served there until the war was over. In 1946, he came back home and uh, went to the work first at the CAA, which is now the FAA. But he decided it, he liked the stability and the security of the postal service better. So he went to work for the post office, which he did my entire life that I knew him. I still remember times we would go in when I was, before I started school, I would, I would go with my mom. She would occasionally take dad to work and, and keep the car because she needed to go grocery shopping or do something. And, you know, you only had one car back in those days. Nobody had two cars. <clears throat> and when it was time for him to get off, we would go down there and she would send me in the back door of the post office to go tell him we were there. I can still smell that post office. Uh, those circulars and all kinds of printed matter and letters and that, that 
smell that it has mixed with a heavy dose of cigarette smoke because it was everywhere in those days. A few years later, I was in middle school, and when I would be walking home from middle school, I would uh, pass by that post office. I'd look to see if his car was there, so maybe I could hitch a ride home with him. And if it was, I would go inside to see how much longer he was going to be. One day, I remember especially going in that back door of the post office to see if I could get a ride with him. And I heard, as I went in, I heard a, a big burst of laughter coming from somewhere behind one of the big sorting stacks and counters. And I, I saw a guy, just, just as the laughter hit, I saw him kind of turn the corner, big smile on his face, and started walking this way, and then he saw my dad. And he stopped dead in his tracks. And his expression changed. And he went up to my dad and he said something. And I, I couldn't hear, but my dad just kind of waved it off. Said, it's okay. When we were driving home, I asked my dad what that was. What, what, what was he saying? And he explained to me. He said the guy, the guy had told an off-color joke. That was the reason for the big laugh. And then he didn't realize my dad was standing there. And so when he saw him there, he, he stopped and apologized to him for what he had said. And my, my dad says, no big deal. You know, it's okay. It wasn't, wasn't really anything that significant for him but it made an indelible impression upon me because, you see, I realized that my dad was so known for his morals and his values and his ethics and standards by the guys that he worked with day in and day out that they realized that he stood for something very different than that. And they respected him enough. It wasn't that they thought he was going to go off on them or get aggravated. or They just respected him enough to try to honor his, his worldview, his values. And I never forgot that. You see, in a, in a quiet, unassuming way, he was having an impact on the people that he encountered in his, in his everyday life, wherever he went, he was making a difference. And, and I think we need to spend a few minutes this morning talking about being difference makers. Because I think it's what Jesus was talking about in the, in the passage that we read just a minute ago. You know, nobody... Uh, nobody joins a team and wants to just sit on the bench. Nobody gives somebody a gift and hopes that they'll never open it. Nobody serves a, in, a, in a position with a, with a company or an organization for years and then, and then when they retire, hopes nobody notices. That's not what we want. We want to matter. We want to make a difference. 
nobody hopes that their memorial service that somebody will stand up and say, well, you know, he was, he was polite and respectable and he was, he was pretty self-absorbed and, and consumed and driven and, and all that. We want somebody, when, when, when our journey in this life is over, we want someone to say, you know, that person really made an impact on me. That person really made a difference in my life. I, I'm, I'm a better person because of knowing him. My, my, my life is richer because I knew her. My, my faith is stronger because I knew that individual. And it made a difference. It mattered. We want to leave the world a little bit changed. We don't want to just take up space. We don't want to just collect a paycheck. We don't want to just get a little more of this or that or the other or do stuff. We want to matter. We want to be difference makers. And that's not a bad thing, okay? God, God put that desire within us. God wired us to want to matter, to want to make a difference in some way. Now, I, I know we can get it messed up with, with being self-consumed and get our ego in the way and sin gets involved in it and it, it, it kind of creates havoc with that. But, but what God placed within us, that desire to make a difference is a good thing. Did you get one of these little packets of salt when you came in? Hopefully everybody got one when you came in the door. If you didn't, there's some in the little tubs at the, at the exits when you go out. If, if you got one and you're wondering, what is this? Is that some kind of Church of Christ thing? They hand out a different condiment every week or something like that? No, it's nothing like that. Just, just hang on to it for a little while. We'll tell you at the end of the, end of the lesson what we want to talk about with that. But it... It's just to help us remember what Jesus said when he said there in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, to to really understand what Jesus meant by that, you have to get an idea of the role that salt played in the world in which Jesus lived because it was a very different matter than it is in our world today. Anybody have any idea what the number one use of salt is in the United States today? More salt's used for this than any other purpose. Anybody know? What? Yeah, exactly. Salting roads. Get, getting the ice off of the roads. Yeah, more, more salt is used for that than anything else. They didn't do that in Jesus' day. <laughs> that wasn't a use for salt. In fact, today only 8% of the salt produced in this country is used for table salt, which is what we typically think of. As salt. I mean, there's other kinds of salt. There's rock salt, and there's sea salt, and there's, there's all kinds of gourmet salts, you know. It's, it's kind of a status kind of thing. It wasn't that way back in Jesus' day. I mean, salt was just salt. In fact, a, a lot of the times, you may have not wanted to take one of these little packets of salt because you're trying to cut down on salt. You know, it can cause health problems, right? You're, you're limiting your intakes of salt, you're using a salt substitute because you've got some issues going on and you don't want to overdo the salt. We want to be real careful about that. But it wasn't that way in Jesus' world. It was a whole different story. People wanted salt. They, 
it was a precious thing to them. I mean, for one thing, I mean, they knew it, it added flavor to food. It was really a, an important thing. They, the taste buds in our, in our, in our tongues are specially designed to receive the salt and all that. They got that. But more important than that was they realized how significant it was in preserving things. You see that death was a whole lot more common back in that world than it is in our world today. I mean, it was, a, it was an everyday experience for most of the people. And, and when, when, they, when they slaughtered animals for their meat, if they didn't eat it right away, didn't cook and eat it right away, they were going to have a real problem with decomposition and it could lead to some real health issues. So they salted it down. And it, they realized that, that salting that meat down would help preserve it and keep it from spoiling I mean, it was so vital. It was so critical. It was a life or death thing in some, some situations, and it was highly prized. Uh, many of the ancient cities in Italy are built on salt works, places where they could get salt readily available. In fact, a guy by the name of uh, Mark Kurlansky wrote a book called Salt, A World History. And in it, he says, in the ancient world, salt was one of the most common factors that provoked and financed wars. They would go to war over salt. And not only go to war over salt, sometimes they paid the soldiers in salt. Rome would pay their, their armies in salt. You know, the, in fact, the Latin word for salt is sal, from which we get our word salary, because it's what you pay somebody for what they're doing. It was really, really significant in Jesus' day, it really, really made a difference. Well, Jesus understood that. And the people he was talking to understood how prized salt was in their world. And he's talking, by the way, to this very ordinary group of people, just this multitude out there on the hillside. These aren't the elite these aren't the educated. These aren't the power brokers. These aren't the gifted and the talented people. These aren't the, the success brokers. These are just people, people like you and me. And Jesus, Jesus says to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the ones that are going to to keep decay and decomposition from setting in in the world. You're the ones that are going to add flavor and zest. You're the ones that are the really valuable ones. You. And that's, that, I'm sure, was hard for them to believe. It's hard for us to believe. I mean, we listen to it and we nod our heads and we say that, but I don't know that we get it. I don't know that we get the significance of what Jesus is saying here. I also don't know that we get the implications of what Jesus is saying here. I mean, one of them, one of the profound implications of this is that salt doesn't exist for its own sake. Salt is never used just for salt. Nobody gets hungry and says, man, I think I'm going to go home and have me a big bowl of salt. That just sounds real good. Nobody's going to do that. You don't go over to somebody's house and they have this nice meal laid out and you, you taste it and it's just wonderful and you say, wow, this has got to be the best salt on this meal that I've ever tasted. What kind of salt is this? Honey, we need to change to this brand of salt. This is just amazing salt on this food. We don't do that. 
Salt's job is to have an impact that doesn't ever call attention to itself, but rather has a profound impact on that with which it comes into contact. Now, to do that, you got to get the salt out of the packet. (laughs) It can't just stay right here. To make a difference, we've got to come into contact with things. When I was a little kid, I saw a movie. The uh, name of it was Bridge on the River Kwai. It was an amazing movie. Won all kinds of Academy Awards. It was a fictional tale, okay? The, the real bridge over the River Kwai, is, you've got a picture of it right there. About 10 or 11 years ago, they made another movie called To End All Wars, it is a true story. It's based on the true story that that earlier movie was fictionalized from. A guy by the name of Ernest Gordon, who was a British Army officer, was captured, and he was imprisoned in Thailand. Uh, the Japanese Army had captured him, and they were forcing these prisoners to build this railroad through the jungle in Thailand. And... <clears throat> They did this under the most horrific conditions you can imagine. I mean, it was, it was hardship and deprivation and cruelty like, like we can't even conceive. They, they did it with, with very little to eat. They had to work in 120-degree heat. Their bodies were stung by insects and ravaged by disease. Their, their, their feet, when the shoes wore out, they just had to go barefoot, and they, they cut them on stones and And if a prisoner appeared to be slacking off in any way, one of the guards would just start to beat him mercilessly, almost to the point of death. And otherwise, they would would work the prisoners until they were too sick to go on, and then they would be placed in in a place they called the death house, where they would just stay and roast until they died. Conditions were so brutal that this is a picture of Ernest Gordon when they found him there in the POW camp. Conditions were so brutal that 80,000 men died trying to build that railroad. Almost 400 men for every mile of track that was laid. And the, the prisoners who survived lived almost like animals. The strong would beat the weak for a few extra grains of rice. <clears throat> the only thing that kept them alive was hate. It was a culture of death. Until one day, something happened. One day, one man became a difference maker. They, they had finished a work detail and they were counting the shovels that they did every time they finished. And they were short one. One was missing. And the guard flew into a rage and demanded that the person that had stolen the shovel own up to what he had done. Nobody confessed. So he pulled his rifle and he pointed it at the nearest prisoner of war and he said, if you don't confess, I'll kill you one by one until you're all dead. And he was just about to pull the trigger when an enlisted man standing over there stepped forward. He said, it was me. I did it. 
And the guard went over to that soldier, took the butt of his rifle and hit him in the head and he fell to the ground and he just beat him. He kicked him and beat him until he was almost dead. That night, as they were putting all of the shovels in the, the little shack that they kept them in, they discovered all the shovels were there. They had just miscounted. No one had taken a shovel. And all the men, all the prisoners realized that innocent man had sacrificed himself Spare them. And one of them recalled what Jesus said in John 15 and verse 13 when he said, greater love has no one than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. And then something happened in that prisoner of war camp. Prisoners started to treat the dying with respect. They started giving them funerals. They started marking their graves with a cross. And the people who were the stronger, instead of taking rice from the weak, they started giving them some of their own rice so that they could get stronger. They started taking care of people. Ernest Gordon, the man who wrote the book, the name of the book is Miracle on the River Kwai, the man who wrote the book, the true account of what they experienced in that prisoner of war camp. He was lying ill with a fever in the death house and some some other prisoners came and picked him up and carried him out of that house and they began to nurse him back to health. They would give him some of their own food and they would bathe him with a, a rag boiled in water every day and they would massage his leg muscles until he could get up and he could actually walk again. And something changed in that, in that place. Ernest Gordon said he hadn't thought about God for a long time, but he did now. And in that camp where people were dying by the thousands, they formed a little community of faith, a little church, and Ernest Gordon became the unofficial pastor of the church. They started, they planted a garden and started growing herbs for medicinal purposes to try to take care of people, treat people who were sick and injured. They started what they called the Jungle University and different people who had experience would teach courses in history and philosophy and uh, science and different languages. They even had a course in Shakespeare from a guy who had taught at Oxford. They created an alternative culture to that culture of death. Jesus has a name for that. He called it the kingdom of God. And it crops up in the most unlikely places. The things, the attitude, the the, the way of life, the environment in that prison camp changed totally. And they were so transformed, those men, by what they experienced there, that when the allies finally won the war, And the the liberators came into the camp. Instead of taking their revenge on their former guards and tormentors, they they treated them with kindness and respect, mercy and forgiveness. 
And Gordon said that turned his life upside down. He, he came back to his native England and went to school and became a minister. And he served for almost 25 years in this country as the dean of the chapel at Princeton University. And all of it started with a single difference maker. Because one difference maker can change the world. See, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You're it. There isn't a plan B. It's up to us. We're not here just to hold church services or to have Bible classes or small groups. We're not here just to do certain programs that we have going on. Those are good things. But that's not our purpose. We're here to be the salt of the earth, to make a difference. Salt doesn't exist for its own sake. It finds its purpose outside itself. Now, to be honest, in some ways, it may be more difficult to be salt here in this culture than it is in a prisoner of war camp. (laughs) Read what somebody wrote about the expectations of culture in 21st century Collin County or places like that. I think this is written from a woman's point of view, but it holds true for all of us. Live in good health, have a long life, be slim and physically fit and toned, have great hair, makeup, and body shape, Be intelligent, articulate, and computer savvy. Get into a good school. Do well in school. Be popular, sexually desirable without being promiscuous. Pursue all our gifts and talents to the point of mastery. Marry a Christian who has met all these criteria. Communicate, have romance, share chores, have date nights in your marriage. Have a beautiful home with walls painted this year's cool colors. Make sure it's clean, well-decorated, and organized with beautiful landscaping. Have gourmet, low-fat meals or low-carb, high-protein meals. Make your baby food from scratch. Have cute kids, healthy, smart, well-behaved, who get into the right schools and who escape the danger of peer culture but still are well-liked and popular. Be involved in ministry. Be wise, respected, have quiet time. Be a prayer warrior. Be a Bible student. Be rich without being snotty, confident but not abrasive, humble yet spiritual. Create family traditions and holidays that are beautiful and meaningful and still relaxed. Raise children in the faith and don't damage them psychologically. Have many deep friendships, extended family relationships. Write letters, remember birthdays and anniversaries and send gifts. Keep in touch with old friends, come to Bible study and be relaxed and friendly and outgoing while you're doing all of that. You know, when you write it down or when you read it out loud like that, it sounds as insane as it is. then we go off and we keep drinking the Kool-Aid. We just keep going after all of that stuff. We're enslaved by this culture. And the danger is, the temptation is to, to buy into all of that stuff that the culture all around us tells us we have to do if we're going to be happy and self fulfilled and then just add church on top. After all, didn't Jesus want us to have the abundant life? And Jesus, I think, just shakes his head and says, no, that's not what it's about, guys. That is not it. 
You're the salt of the earth. Don't suck up all this stuff that culture tells you you have to do. It's killing us. Now, please do not hear this as one more command of what you've got to do. You've got to go try hard to be salt. That's not the point. When you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ and you understand your value and your security are there, it frees you from all the demands, all the expectations that the world tells you you have to meet if you're going to be okay. And if you don't, there's just something not right with you. When we understand that it's in that communion with Jesus that we begin to become salt and we relax in that, we rest in him, then we start to get salty. And people in the world see a difference in us. You're the salt of the earth, Jesus said. Those are amazing words. They're they're so powerful that, that we embroider them and frame them and hang them on our walls. We love that. Problem is Jesus didn't stop there. You are the salt of the earth, Matthew 5, 13. But if salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You ever see anybody embroider those and hang them up on the wall? I don't think so. You know, he, was, he had done so well if he had just stopped there. But that's the problem with Jesus. He never just stops and leaves well enough alone, you know. He has to put something like that in there. And, and, and that kind of stuff troubles us, and we don't understand. We don't know what to do with that, and we, we struggle with that. They struggled with it then. We struggle with it today. That's the kind of thing you want to go to Brother Ian and say, Brother Ian, would you tell us what the original language meets, means here? Because we want to find some, some meaning in the Greek that explains this away. but it means exactly what he said. Here's what culture will do to us. It will try to seduce us to serve it rather than God. And we get involved in a life that's too busy, too driven, too preoccupied with whatever it is that's going on, with grades or with college or with romance or with marriage or with kids or with a house or with your job or your career or whatever it is. It's always something. We get so consumed by that. that we don't don't keep the connection with Jesus. And what we do with church is use it as sort of a pain reliever, a stress management tool. You ever look at the side of a bottle of Tylenol or Advil? Right there on the side of the bottle, it says on every bottle, it says temporary relief of minor aches and pains. It doesn't really deal with with the problem, it just gives us a little bit of relief for a moment, temporarily. And that's kind of how we do church sometimes. We do all of this stuff. We're just killing ourselves out there. And then we come here and we want somebody to give us some words and we want to have this little time. And it just, oh, 
and it gives us relief. And then we go out those doors and we go right back into the rat race that we've been in. People sometimes come to church year after year after year and stay on the same crazy treadmill, overworked, overcommitted, overextended financially, and still praying about the same stuff we were praying about 10 years ago. And if we're honest about it, we have to admit the reason we're still praying about the same stuff, still struggling with the same stuff, is we've never given up what the world tells us we need to be about. We've never sold out completely to Jesus. And the prayer that we pray, that the real prayer that our heart prays is something like, Lord, please relieve us from the stress and the pressure and the pain of all these things that are going on in our life while we continue to pursue what we've always done. And then we don't know why it doesn't work. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. We don't come here just to put on programs or worship services or Bible classes. We don't come here just to reinforce the things that we already believe and think. We come here to go out and make a difference in our workplace, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our homes to lose ourself in making a difference for someone else. To make a difference, we have to do what God tells us to do, not what the world tells us to do. My dad, the guy who grew up in the Dust Bowl in the Great Depression, after he got out of the service, went to the post office, He retired from the post office in the fall of 1980. I suspect the fact that the summer of 1980 is still the hottest one on record had something to do with his decision to retire. He continued to serve in the church. He was an elder for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. Then he decided it was time to let somebody else fill that role. He kept teaching the the auditorium class in their church. This guy with an eighth grade education taught the biggest class in church for years and years until he got to the point that his hearing failed enough that he couldn't hear people ask questions or make comments and he said, it's time for me to give that up. He still continued to lead the World Bible School ministry. He turned 89 his last birthday and every week, He organizes and gives assignments to 40 people in their church that grade and send out lessons all over the world to help people come to know Jesus Christ. You see, you're never too old to make a difference. You're never too young to make a difference. Never too rich, never too poor, never too big, never too small. We just have to decide that wherever we are, whatever role God has given us now, we'll use for him. We'll be all sold out to him and make a difference that he lets us make. So here's what I want you to do with the salt packet. Take that salt packet and put it somewhere. Put it in your pocket, guys. 
Put it in your purse, ladies. And every time you reach down in your pocket and you feel that, every time you look into your purse and you see it this week, I want you to think, Jesus said, I'm the salt of the earth. And then sometime, next weekend, would you take that packet and open it up and pour it out, pour it all out. If you're a French fry kind of a person, pour it out on your fries. If you're a bacon and eggs kind of person, pour it out on your eggs. If you're an egg substitute kind of person, put just a little pinch on the egg substitute, okay? Pour it out. And then pray this prayer, God, I want you to pour me out. Pour my life out like I'm pouring this salt out. Use me, God. Make me a difference maker. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much.